It is uh, Mental Health Awareness Month uh, in uh, this month of May of 2023. And I was sort of struck by something I saw in LinkedIn this week. It was a post by a guy called Richard Curtis. He's a planning engineer at Tata. And um, it sort of reminded me of the the theme of this series, uh, which is really about ways that we need to more genuinely connect with people and also that connection to mental uh, health and wellness. I wanted to read it out because it really struck me when I saw it this week. What a wonderful spirit it had and uh, and a great reminder of how we need to connect with people in genuine ways. It was basically a post. Uh, there's no, I don't think it was Richard's. He was just sharing it uh, as a story that he had heard or had read. But it is about a, basically a father uh, picking up his son uh, from the playground at school. And it reads, walking through my son's schoolyard, I notice a bench painted bright red. I asked my son, is that the only place to sit around here? He said, no, that's the buddy bench. When someone feels lonely or they have nobody to play with, they sit there and kids ask them to play. I then told him how wonderful that was and asked him if he ever used it. He said, yeah, when I was new, I sat there and someone came and asked me to play. I felt happy. And now when I see kids sit on it, I ask them to play with me. All of us do. It was just a wonderful thought. I think that we tend to forget how powerful these basic needs are and openness and humanity and as we as we look to this series and as we look beyond that into issues of mental health, it's just something to keep in mind that we need to reach out to other people and remind them that we are not only open to connecting with them, but we empathize with what they're going through. So for those who are struggling with mental health issues, and it certainly is something that is, visits uh, my family pretty regularly, um, uh, I empathize with you and I hope that you're able to find help and support that you need. Welcome to On Strategy Showcase. I'm Fergus O'Carroll in Chicago. Here's a clip from today's show. In the UK, the most popular television programs are still soap operas. It's still EastEnders on Coronation Street. Lots of people have seen Stranger Things, but not as many people have seen the big television programs that you see on the Saturday. But that's uncool, even though that's people's lives. And I think the more we actually embrace the ordinariness, the wonder actually of the struggle and the the challenge and the uncertainty of real people's lives, the, the more powerful it's actually going to be because that's what resonates with people when they feel understood. That's Andrew Havels, today's guest for episode two of our four-part series, Outside in Thinking. It really brings to the surface this idea that can living full-time outside the bubble provide more value than sort of the infrequent excursions that we do uh, in this industry. That's at the core of our, this week's conversation. Now, Andrew Havels, he made a very deliberate decision to live outside of the bubble, to move outside of London into a smaller town uh, called Leeds in northern England. And for those of you who know Andrew and have read uh, what he has written, he has a wonderful blog called The Northern Planner. And the reason he's called The Northern Planner is that he made that decision to deliberately move north uh, out of the major market. He found, out of the, and the major market being London, he found that being in a major market uh, skewed how he felt 
and how he worked and how it influenced the outcomes of his projects. His blog is really popular in the strategy world. It reminds us of the value of perspective and of real people's lives. Now, the series is sponsored by the planning department because it's something that they, as a consultancy, strongly believe in. And if you'd like to sponsor one of our series, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at hello at onstrategyshowcase.com or you can download our 2023 sponsor kit on our homepage at onstrategyshowcase.com. We're once again joined for our uh, intro to this uh, episode in our series by Steve McCarran. He's the co-founder of the planning department. They're based in Manchester, England. Welcome, Steve. Hi, Fergus. In our first episode, uh, we heard about the dangers of planning that sort of asks the same questions of the same people using the same techniques. And the point of bringing that up was that we were sort of concluding that that can many times lead to the sort of same strategic directions if we're all sort of fishing in the same fishbowl. Should it matter how we get there as long as where we land actually works for a client? Well, if it does actually work for a client, that's the key thing, isn't it? We're in the business of creating great, effective work for clients, and it doesn't really matter how we get there. However, I would always argue that if you've got a strong planning input and a cleverly designed research process, you're more likely to get to those good outcomes every time. As a community, we should all be advocates of making sure that we carve out resource and budget in order to create cleverly designed inputs so that we increase the likelihood of that fantastic work every time. Given what you guys do as an outside-in resource, are clients more open to non-traditional techniques and thinking? Is that in part what they want from an outside source like yourselves? The bottom line is that clients do want to create better work. Um, They just don't know how it's done. So they will they'll fall back often on what they've done before and what they know. But if you have conversations with them about a smarter, better way of doing it, which fits within their budget and timescales, I've, I've often found that they're, they're open to that. Thanks to Steve McCarran of the planning department in Manchester, England, the sponsor of this series. Appreciate your time today, Steve. Thank you, Fergus. And we'll be right back. This series is sponsored by The Planning Department, a new breed of strategy agency that lets you access a world-class planning department as and when you need it. Think of it as having a planning department without the year-round overhead. Based in the UK, they're a group of researchers and strategists spread across the globe with diverse proven experience across all major categories. As outside voices, they bring fresh, objective perspective to brand and business problems. So if you're interested in having world-class brand and communication strategists on your business, be sure to connect with them because the best ideas happen when you bring the outside in. Learn more at theplanningdepartment.co.uk. That's theplanningdepartment.co.uk. Now back to the show. I'm thrilled to have with me today uh, the man who many of you around the world will know is the Northern Planner. He is uh, Andrew Hovels. Welcome, Andrew. Hi there. Uh, n- nice to meet you. It's great to be here. Um, exciting. 
so I would I would I had um I had Rob Campbell and Martin Weigel and uh, Paula Bloodworth on the the show a couple of weeks ago, and during that conversation, Rob Campbell's Rob Campbell said that I have to get you on the show, and I was like, of course I have to get you on the show. We had not talked prior to this. So uh, he ref- he referenced you as a brilliant planner, quote unquote. Um, so I was like, okay, this has got to be a really interesting guy because uh, the people that we hear referenced at, as brilliant planners tend to live in the larger media markets and ad markets. But you seem to have made a conscious decision, i.e., the northern planner versus the southern planner. Um, that uh, that you want that you've chosen to live outside of uh, major media markets, major ad markets. Uh, what what um, what drove that choice for you to work outside of a major advertising agency or marketing services market? Was it in any way um, driven by what you're experiencing in the ad world, and you felt you just wanted to sort of get outside of that, or or was or was it once you were outside of it, you began to realize that there was a lot of value in being on the outside? Um, I actually found that, and still find to a certain degree, that whenever I come into contact with agencies in, let's call it the big established cities, and especially the big established networks, um, there's very brilliant, intelligent people that do fantastic work. But one thing I found was that these big cities can be slightly disconnected to the rest of the people in their country, or in terms of global, in many ways, the rest of the people around the world, that advertising people, media people, brand people, are not very much like the people they serve. And it can mean that they can do really fantastic work and really incredibly entertaining work. I wasn't sure, and I'm still not sure, that it always resonates with the real people out there. And one thing I found, living in Leeds as I do, and what I've found talking to other people that don't live in so-called established markets is, you just build up over time a deeper instinct, like a sixth sense for what real people are feeling. Yeah, absolutely. Primary research is important, understanding through data what people are doing. But it's not the same as living your life around the people that you're trying to target. Um, One thing which you can't do in London, for example, is go get a bus with somebody who lives and breathes your product because people that live in London are very different. I mean, it's a fantastic multicultural city, but it's not the same as the 90% of the people that live in the UK. And one thing which I get my team to do, which I think is incredibly valuable, is just get a standard bus and listen to the conversations and you pick up things by instinct. You absorb real life. Then when you get briefs, you breathe all that knowledge out. Um, So I do think there is an advantage in many ways in living outside the bubble because you just get exposed to real real life and I think that can be really important and really powerful as well. What sort of... um experience that you've had has sort of led to you sharing this conviction so strongly that we've sort of we're not connecting if we're not connecting you know um who the hell are we connecting to (laughs) i i think that question gets to the heart of some of the challenges in the industry um some of it is to do with the location 
of some agencies and indeed the location of some clients as well, because so many clients tend to be in big city hubs as well. But I also think it's something to do with the approach as well. And I think that somehow the approach and the process is linked to the geography, that it's very easy to rely on primary research and focus groups, which are always like second hand. But even worse, thinking about some of the tools which are out there at the moment, thinking about segmentations and personas, they are yeah. models. And it's very easy to buy into the process of building a persona and thinking that a model is a real person and you never get to the depth of the real person. Thinking about some of the processes about how research is done, there's, there's the fake thing that they will ask a potential consumer, a potential buyer about, what do you think about the category? What do you think about my product? Mm-hmm. And the real answer is, I don't think about it at all because I've got better things to do. Um, I'm spending a lot of the time at the moment working in dog food and cat food, and obviously the client loves to want to know what consumers think about dog food and cat food. The honest answer is they don't think about it very much. They want to take the dog out for a walk. So the very act of asking consumers about consumers, forgive me, real people, I hate the word consumer, um, asking people about your product is already starting a fake conversation. And so the more divorced you are from real people and the more you use processes to get to asking fake questions and fake answers, the more divorced you become from real life and it creates the illusion of certainty and the illusion that you feel you understand your target audience when what you're really understanding is a model and a persona and in many ways a construction. I think that can be the same the way that many organisations think about brands. Now, obviously, brands are constructions. They are fake things that you can't touch and you can't feel. But if you focus so much on a brand onion or a brand triangle, whatever shape that you want, and you focus too much on making sure that the words and brand propositions are perfect, and brand consultancies get paid hundreds of thousands for doing this, you forget that what a brand really is, is the experience that the person has with it. A brand is not necessarily the product. It's a way that people experience and interact that product and the world around it. In our first episode, when we talked with uh, Steve Lacey, for those who, who haven't heard it, I just wanted to recap something that came out of that for me that was really important. When when I when I had um, um, when I had, would get involved in qualitative work, whether it was sort of ethnography or whatever it it might be, or it was interviews with people wherever they live or work. Um, I, nine times out of 10, have always felt that the results of that sort of casual, informal type research, if properly framed, and if it had some interesting perspective in it, um, when brought to a client, tended to sort of wash everything else off the table. Because I think everybody is craving fresh perspective. Now, one of the things that came out of the Steve Lacey interview and Steve is with uh, the Outsiders. He's based um, in the UK also. But one of the things that came out of that was this question of scalability. And I brought it up because I was thinking, okay, if you go out and you talk to 10 people or, or you go and you sit on a bus and you hear a perspective from somebody, 
what isn't there a danger then when you bring it into a client that it's not quantifiable? It doesn't really have the heft of of rigor underneath it. It's a comment you heard. Maybe it connects the dots in your head, which I think it absolutely does, and that's what its greatest value is. But is there a risk of clients saying, well, it, it doesn't have a large enough sample. It doesn't have the right target audience that we think is our target audience. And Steve brought up a great point. He said, everybody is stuck in this world of fishbowl thinking. Uh, that was his term. And he said, it's the idea that everybody is asking the same questions in their surveys, in their conversations, and they're getting the same answers. The the value of doing these types of things is the fact that you're trying to uncover something different. And maybe it's not projectable across, you know, 500 or 1,000 people. Maybe it's not everybody's life, but at least everybody can relate to it. And so it makes that connection in a way that's meaningful. And that is its true value. The fact that it is different than what other people are producing. And if And if you want to do great marketing, as you know, We've got to do things that are different in a meaningful way. And I loved that idea because I always used to think, well, shit, uh, I go in after interviewing 10 people. I think I got something really rich here, but then somebody's going to crap on it by saying it isn't something that came out of a major trends report or it disagrees with the trends report. I think that perspective of being, of recognizing right up front and, and communicating with clients too, why we're doing this type of work, this outside in perspective in non-traditional ways. It's because we're trying to find unique space that maybe it doesn't connect with everybody, but everybody can relate to it. And I think that's, that, that was a really rich perspective. Any, anything, anything connect with you on that? I, I think a lot, lot of that does. I think that's a really fair question and an observation. With many clients, many organizations, if you can't quantify it, then it's very easy to um, reject it. I, I think that's entirely fair. Um, I think it's a really strong point that no brand can please everybody and shouldn't do. And every meeting I have with, with a client, one of the first things I always want to remind them of is the fact that nobody really cares. No one's really interested. But you have to find a way to get people's attention. And I, I think that's hugely, hugely important. But I, I think to build on that, and maybe this is heresy, heresy to say, but I actually wrote a post about this on my blog a while back, that there is such a thing about dirty planning where if you have something which you feel is true and you've seen it time and time again when you've spoken to people in, in informal ways, then there are a million ways of proving it, which is how you make the evidence connect. One thing which I do, for example, of course, is I look at the trends and try and get the client to see the connection between the trends. But also it's incredible when you use sources like journalism, for example, and you talk to journalists and you see what journalists are writing about. Journalists have no choice. If they, have, if they don't produce something that people are interested in, then pe people won't read it. We just begin to bring to life the discourse, what people are talking about, what's resonating with people. And that, that can work. And another trick as well, what as I try to find in the work is try and bring it back to perennial human truths as well. There may be something going on, there may be something really interesting, but there's nothing more powerful than how people really behave and how people really care. 
And there's lots of different ways of proving it, which don't have to be primary research. And even in this day and age, I think the more that you can bring to life some of those conversations that are going on and provide this wealth of evidence, the more powerful it can be. And to be honest, again, this, this comes back to realness. That if clients can't relate to it as human beings and we can't help them relate to it, then we've missed a trick as well. But ultimately, I think that a really great piece of work, if we can't get excited by it and we can't feel the truth in it ourselves, why the hell should the target audience? It should feel real, I think. And that, that can be the trick. And sometimes that's why I struggle with, as, as you begin to articulate, this challenge for absolute genius. You know that question, like, well, what's the insight? The problem with an insight is that many agencies and many researchers for that matter and many clients are looking for the next big thing. They're looking for something cool. They're looking for something which is absolutely revolutionary. And sometimes they miss some amazing things which are right in front of them. Yes. By the, they, they manage not to see people. They manage not to see truth because they get caught up with looking for something new and different. And that absolutely has its place, depending on the brand. It really, really does. Because there's nothing more powerful sometimes than capturing like a trend or something cultural on the rise. And that can produce fantastic work and we've all seen it. But sometimes, like there's more than one way of doing things. If that's all that you look for, you can miss some incredible stuff which is right in front of your eyes. Which again, thinking about clients, it's it's very it's not it's not in it's unarguable because it's stuff that we all know. We just don't act upon it. I mean, I used to work in tea and I used to work in coffee. And even thinking about coffee, it's amazing how not many coffee brands talk about the fact that coffee gets us through our hard days. How many brands are connecting to office work? How many brands are connecting to the simple fact that if coffee's to get through our work day, why not producing content about us, content about us getting used to remote working, for example? Well, it seems obvious to me, but nobody's doing it. Why? <laughs> what is it about the fact that we are constantly looking for the the new thing? And, you know, if we contrast sort of the the conversations that we we might have about sort of um, you know, we, maybe we label it as edge thinking, like what's emerging, what's on the edge. Yeah. Are we as a, are we as an industry? It seems that many of us in the industry are always pushing for what's next rather than leaning in a little deeper on what's now. And I, th I think that's one of the things that I loved about doing this episode was the idea that have we become jaded with looking or have we lost interest in looking deeper into what is already there and is this desire for what's next sort of pushing us to places that aren't right for brands for every brand i, I think that's a really interesting question i think the only answer is that edge thinking is right but i don't think there's one way of of doing it and the, the, the challenge always, I think, if you work in advertising is that there's always this drive to be original. There's always this drive for the next best thing. And sometimes you do forget what's in front of you. And for some brands, it's absolutely appropriate because some brands have to project um, newness. They have to project novelty. They have to move with the times. 
But for many brands, that's not appropriate, especially thinking about the more mainstream brands. They are targeting people who live very, very normal lives and don't like their lives disrupted. And those people want their lives recognised. And I think that's really interesting, thinking about the culture that's out there, thinking about the popular culture that most people enjoy. Um, people will revere certain television programmes and films and they get talked about, but most people never see them. In, in the UK, the most popular television programmes are still soap operas. It's still EastEnders on Coronation Street. Lots of people have seen Stranger Things, but not as many people have seen the big television programmes that you see on the Saturday. But that's uncool, even though that's people's lives. And I think the more we actually embrace the ordinariness, the wonder, actually, of the struggle and the the challenge and the uncertainty of real people's lives, the, the more powerful it's actually going to be, because that's what resonates with people when they feel understood, when they feel that brands have actually got their back that are thinking about them. I think that's a really interesting place to be, but but gets missed. Yeah, it, it gets missed a lot, and, and I think some of the great episodes that we've had on this show, many of them, are are driven by this sort of rediscovering what is right in front of your eyes and it, it has it has turned around many brands and as I, as I sit here talking I'm thinking uh, specifically about a brand like um, Cadbury yeah. with their generosity platform there's a glass and a half in everyone that's a fascinating case study in in um, in just sort of revisiting the DNA of the brand and the DNA of that category and the user experience and the, and the, the, the joyful simplicity of that campaign, I just think is so powerful. And, and that, because we, when we talked through it on the show, uh, that's in essence what it was. It was a return to the DNA of the brand. It was a, re- it was a return to the experience of why people buy chocolate and how it feels to them, uh, whereas they had spent a number of years straying off into places that were a little edgier, that were a little uh, different for different sake, and that in retrospect they now feel w- that that was a mistake to to actually go down that road. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think Bailey's is another example of a, of a brand that has again simple simple ideas based upon people how people are using the product when they talk about adult uh, treating. So Bailey's is no longer just a, a bottle you take out at Christmas time. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a product that you can uh, enjoy as a, as an ingredient in a recipe. It's, it's in a cocktail, it's in a chocolate treat. So it becomes this sort of thing you can use year round. Now that's, that's a thing that people were doing with the product anyway, but nobody was paying attention. And that's the beauty of that. And, and that's sort of the beauty of, of having somebody from with an outside perspective come in and give you or remind you of what's core and what is fresh and, and give you opportunities. Oh, I, I, absolutely. I think those are two great e- examples. Um, I think what can be interesting as well is sometimes it takes a brand a while to actually find its voice and actually maybe really nail why people love it or why people are beginning to use it um another brand i've worked with i'm not going to pretend i came up with the um, concept but i enjoyed working on it nonetheless was yorkshire tea oh brilliant is i happen to have loved yorkshire tea all my life so i was always a fan i really enjoyed working on it and um 
the thinking on it was fantastic, but it was also a statement of what seems like the obvious, that y- you had a brand that, and ha- have a brand that insists on taking care of the smallest details to make sure that they serve the best tea. That's our objective, to make sure that everyone gets great tea. But what it was really about, in my opinion, was the simple observation that tea in the UK, at least, is about rituals. It's about care, it's about attention. You can tell a lot about somebody about how they make a cup of tea and that attention to detail is absolutely important. And all they brought to life was this idea of properness, which is making sure that everyone gets a decent cup of tea. It doesn't seem very revolutionary, but the thinking was very simple, but the execution was great. But what it did was bring to life the absolute philosophy of the company, which is we don't leave, we don't cut any corners to make sure we serve people the best tea. But it was really about the DNA of tea really in the UK culture, which is actually about properness and about those rituals. There's the argument in the UK about when you serve tea from a pot, who should put the milk in first. There's the horrible thing when people actually will not let tea brew and whether you should use China and a billion other things. It just captured it. And it simply told the truth in an incredible way. And I thought that was great. Um, I think that Maltesers in the UK is another great example as yeah, well. They, brilliant. It's, it's a fantastic long-running campaign when simple observation, simple truth, target audiences, roughly, let's say, youngish women, conceptually maybe working in offices, but they know that, or understood, that there's lots of fantastic chats that girls tend to have around a cup of tea and a bit of chocolate. And they just brought to life what those real life chats were. They were funny, they were real, but it gave a role for the brand that just brought it to life. Maltesers is here to facilitate real conversation between real people. And because real conversation between real people are really entertaining and funny, they just shone a light on it. I thought it was great. One of the things that, that comes out of this, this idea of outside in thinking is the concern about how we're not, or many of us, are sort of suggesting or implying that we're sort of jaded with um, um, the category as it might exist for us today. For example, if you've been on a piece of business, whether a client-side person or a an agency planner, and you've been on a piece of business for a year, maybe two, maybe three, mm. it is more um, it is more often the case that you have blocked out of your mind so many possible directions because in year one, you were in search of something gold and maybe you found it. And even on the way to that, you probably saw some potential directions. But by the time you got to the one that you ended up uh, executing on, you probably forgot many of those. You head into year two, you head into year three. There's a degree where you just become blind to what is right in front of you. And it's very difficult to go back. And and I think that's a large part of why uh, brands get lost is that having a fresh perspective, whether it's a new person who comes in on the business, whether it's an outside perspective from a, from a planning group or from an agency or from a, from a consultancy helps you sort of reinvigorate that. And I think that is what, is happening on i think that's what happened with cadbury i think that's what happened with um with um uh, 
you know, with Dove. I yes. think that's what happened with McDonald's here in the U.S. and in the U.K. with the raise your eyebrows, or uh, more importantly, on a larger scale here in the U.S. for fan truths with Wyden and Kennedy. Yeah, that that always existed, and particularly fan truths with Wyden and Tastopoulos and that team. That 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 sort of strategic space existed. It's been there for decades. But there's the momentum that a brand gets on, and then it loses sight of these such obvious things, and it needs that sort of outside and thinking to bring bring it to life again. Um, th- that's the sort of stuff that sort of uh, we all celebrate as an industry when people discover it. But why are we missing it? You know, it's like what is? How do we avoid missing those more obvious things? I certainly think there are a number of approaches. I think the first thing I would say that a lot of it comes down to philosophy and attitude. Um, I had two great pieces of advice when I was younger. A boss said to me, what you must never forget to do is find something to admire in your target audience. And what that meant was, and it's still something which I do today, is don't see them as a number but continually find ways to fall in love with them and fall back in love with them. Because when you actually are enthusiastic about them or want to do the best for them and actually admire them versus, I don't know how many focus groups you've been in, but I remember sitting behind the one-way mirror and seeing agencies and clients people sometimes taking the piss out of the people they were interviewing, almost as if they were beneath them. When you admire and respect your audience, it's amazing how much you begin to get into their lives, literally. And um, another piece of advice is genuinely learn to love and be enthusiastic about the brand. I remember years ago, David Ogilvy used to say, well, you've got to live and buy the product. So he used to wear the shirts, of course, and drive Rolls Royces. I can't afford a Rolls Royce, obviously, but use the products and genuinely love the product. And no matter what the brief, find ways to be really enthusiastic about it. But I do think there are other things that you can do as well. And I think this is a, day-to-day job not a once in a while job is go out there don't read well do read actually some of the cool things that you can read but read the things that your target audience reads as much as you can watch the things on television or on netflix that you think that they watch as well and when you do that you're continually in contact with what your audience is really thinking and doing and it just transforms that, that to me, that to me, is the way planning becomes valuable. But one other point would be, I think we've also gotten to a place, and I used to see it all the time too, and it used to irritate the shit out of me. It was we inside the industry, the ideas we generated were were like what was what was super cool and unique, but it wasn't about it being super cool and unique to the people we were trying to communicate to. They were an afterthought. It was ridiculous. It was like we thought that our job was to sell what we could create to a client rather than sell what we create to our target audience. And so our currency was cool and what's next uh, rather than – so you would ask the question, but are people really going to fucking use this or do this or feel this? Uh, But there there wasn't a lot of interest in that. And I I think that that still exists today because – we um we are too much focused on what's cool and new for cool and new sake versus for cool and authentic, uh, which I think is a better place to be. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I just think it's really useful when you see the truth and you see the truth every day. Um, I also think as well, actually, that it enables you to do what a lot of what companies can't do, especially if they're based in London, for example, is you can go out and talk to people and watch them where they're actually using or interacting with the product a lot easier. And that, that makes a huge, huge difference because you understand, I hate the word culture, but I'll use it, the real culture around the product or a brand. Yeah. When, when, when you actually see people use it, it, it amazes me. I've, I've done some stuff in soccer, um, and it's amazing the people I worked with, none of them have ever been to a bloody soccer match. They never listened to the conversations on the stands. It reminds me of something else I've discovered working on football, which I've used elsewhere about, again, getting to the truth, is that if you want to market to many men or you want to instill conversations between men, you need to realise that one of the differences which seems to be there, whether it's socially generated or biological, but it seems to be there, is women have relationships face-to-face. They talk to each other. Men have relationships side-by-side. If you want men to bond together, you have to give them something to do together, which is a really great truth, which you only discover if you if you watch them do it. And it seems really obvious when they say it, but I only discovered it when I watched my kid playing football, for example. So you only see these things when you see people actually doing and using or interacting with the things that you're supposed to be selling. That's such a rich territory. This is real life now. Changing people's lives are profound. And right now in culture, we are dealing with more shift of tectonic plates, tectonic plates in life than ever before. So in my opinion, real mundane life, if you want to call it like that, I've never been so rich, never more full of potential, never more interesting. So there's no way to go out to the edge because mm. the edge at the moment is in the middle because we're all in uncharted waters. That's a massive opportunity for new brands, not just mainstream brands, to become part of all these shifts, have a point of view on that and go with the flow because consumers have got the answers. We haven't got the answers about what we're supposed to do. But being part of the solution can be really powerful, I think. I love that thought, what you just said, which is you, you take a what could be a mundane observation about daily life and you make it more powerful. I think I'm paraphrasing what you just said there, but is that, is that what you're saying? Can you share an example of that? Can you think of anything? I know I'm putting you on the spot. No, no, I I, I certainly can. Um, I'll give you two. One, there's a UK real estate brand called TK Maxx. And essentially what they do is they get um, seconds and out of date expensive products from brands and they sell them in one place at a discount and it's really hard shopping experience and you have to work hard to find it now that can be a really bad thing but what the agency has done has turned that into a campaign called ridiculous possibilities when anything is possible so they've taken a simple truth they have to work hard to find what's in there into a fantastic campaign called ridiculous possibilities where anything is possible and it's out there and it's quite mental and it's quite wacky, but it brings a simple truth to life. There's lots of examples of it, to be honest. I think some of the best work does tend to do that, where you take a simple truth and you explode it. Because it's a simple truth, it's always believable. It is Andrew Hovels, known as the Northern Planner to most <laughs> of us around the world. He's a strategy director at Live and Breathe. They're in Leeds in the United Kingdom. Andrew, thank you, man.
Thanks for your time. It's been great talking to you. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks so Me much. Me too. Me too. And uh, great to have you as part of this series. And we will see everyone on the next episode.